Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show for Tuesday, March 30th. We'll be talking about the Shaw-Rogers merger. Right now, they are arguing in front of MPs that it'll be great for all Canadians. We'll ask Michael Geis for his opinion on that and a history lesson in Canada's first and only segregated battalion. But first, status of the upcoming April school break is in question. Yep. Yesterday, the Toronto District School Board sent out a letter to principals and vice principals. And here to talk about that letter, Ryan Bird, spokesperson for the TDSB. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Good to have you on. It's been a while. Hi, Kelly. So what did the uh, contents of this letter mainly say? So as a reminder to principals and vice principals that we really have to be ready for the possibility of not only a system closure, but individual class closures, school closures, which we've been having really since the beginning of the year. So it actually got sent out uh, yesterday morning prior to word coming out of Queen's Park uh, that we would have an update later on this week. So it wasn't a matter of you know us having any advance notification or, or anything like that. We're truly just trying to be as prepared as we can. Uh, two of our schools already uh, have been dismissed by Toronto Public Health as they continue their investigations. That happened on Sunday. So uh, we're just trying to reiterate what we've been saying since the beginning of the year. Yeah, I have to, though, you know, call you on that. You know, do we principals and vice principals have been dealing with this pandemic for over a year here, Ryan? Why would they need a reminder now? To me, that smacks of April break coming up. No, I get that. And we did reference April break, not only Easter break and April break coming up. No, to be clear, we know that everyone's talking about this right now. The cases continue to go up. We have a, a, a four day Easter break coming up. We've got the April break after that. You know, people may be getting together for Easter dinners and, and, and essentially mixing cohorts during the time off. So we know that that's a realistic possibility. So I think with that in mind, although we, we truly do not have any advanced notification, but knowing that that's coming up, that's why we wanted to issue a reminder. But it has been the advice that we've been saying since the beginning of the year um, that we have to be ready not only for a system closure, but those individual class closures uh, and school closures that we continue to get. Um, Speaking of the uh, school closures and individual closures, uh, I think that we are acknowledging that those things are a reality and we'll still be dealing with those on a case by case basis. But really, yesterday when asked about this, the education minister said that April break is not changed and is slated to start on April 12th. In the same breath, though, I think he said, you know, we will defer to Dr. Williams and whatever he has to say. But when we look at the numbers, Ryan, um, March break was canceled when numbers were about uh, about 1,200 on average cases, 1,264 is what we have for an average number. But now we're looking at over 2,000 cases for the last um, seven days. Let's talk about reading the writing that's on the wall. Could this spring break be canceled, in your opinion? Because I know that the, the government has continuously said that schools are safe places. You know, it, it, it really is hard to speculate. I, I think you're, you're right in the sense that the numbers are different now than they were um, before when they canceled March break. Uh, whether they continue with it, I, you know, I think from our perspective, we know that not only students and staff, they also need a bit of a mental health break uh, right now, uh, as do many people, quite frankly, uh, given everything going on. Uh, so whether they end up canceling that, would they do remote learning around that time? Uh, to ensure the kind of the health and safety precautions uh, as they did uh, shortly after Christmas, we actually don't know. Um, but I think I would think that they're looking at a number of options right now 
uh, again, depending on those numbers that they're seeing. The numbers continue to rise. Variants of concern, I believe, are roughly 50% of the cases they're seeing right now. So I think we're in a, a different situation. Uh, but this is where we have to rely on the medical experts and public health officials because they're looking at the data now and they're looking at the data where it may go uh, in the future, taking into consideration, you know, Easter break and having a week off for everyone where they may be getting together. So uh, I think, you know, we can speculate. And uh, again, really, we, we're trying to read the tea leaves and make sure that people are prepared. Uh, but in the end, we have to rely on public health officials to say what's best. What goes into preparing for the possibility of remote learning um, and not coming back from an April break? Well, I think it's being cognizant that, you know, if you've got a laptop at school, make sure you're bringing it home. And that, to be honest, is good advice for staff in general, because we're finding out, you know, for example, this past weekend on Sunday night, I was working with two schools that had to flip to remote learning uh, on a Sunday night, essentially, in place for tomorrow or yesterday morning. Um, because it can happen at a moment's notice. So things like that, make sure that you have all the materials, students. Uh, there are tens of thousands of uh, netbooks uh, and uh, iPads, that kind of thing, out in the system right now. So students should be prepared. But if you have something important in, in school, make sure you're bringing it home. Don't leave it over the weekend, for example. Or, you know, if you have something important, an important textbook, don't leave it at school, make sure you're bringing it home each day. And I think that's a good reminder throughout the school year because you don't want to be caught with all of a sudden a school pivoting to remote learning and then finding out something you desperately need is sitting in a locker. We're speaking with Ryan Bird, the spokesperson for the Toronto District School Board. Ryan, you said earlier on in our conversation that teachers and students really need that break. What are you hearing anecdotally? Well, I, I think we, we had done a survey of staff and students earlier this year. Uh, we know that this is taking a toll on some of them. We know that in-person learning is where a lot of students are thriving and what they need. And then others, you know, that remote learning is best for them. We do know that mental health uh, compared to other years is not great right now, to say the least. We know that there are a lot of challenges and stresses. And, and that's not unique to, uh, you know, teachers or students. Everyone, I think, is experiencing that kind of thing right now. Um, but I, I think given that there is a week coming up to take a bit of a mental break that people have been have been preparing for and, and looking forward to, uh, I, I think it's important that that continues. It's right. just a matter and, of how that does it around that. Yeah. And there are challenges and stresses with remote learning. So I guess my final question for you is could canceling the break this April break save in-class learning? Uh, you know what? I, I truly don't know the answer to that, Kelly. I, I, I'm not trying to, to dodge that. I actually just don't know. Well, you um, know I'd call you on that if I thought you were trying to dodge it all. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I appreciate that. I truly do not know. Um, I think even if one week may not necessarily be enough of a, what are people calling it, like a circuit breaker, if you will, uh, to stop uh, the increase in cases. So I think we're going to have to wait and see what public health says and what they're projecting based on the upcoming weeks. Um, but I, I just don't know the answer to that right now. That's why we're still really waiting to hear from public health officials to say, OK, knowing that we've got Easter break coming up this weekend, knowing that we've got another week off, uh, you know, a week from now, a week and a half from now. What are you anticipating and what do we need to do to make sure that we stop the spread? And, and that's what we're, we're really looking forward to hearing. It was going to be my last question, but you know that I organically like interviews to happen. So 
Uh, based on what you just said, and based on the fact that the premier was saying, well, we're 10 days out here, anything could happen. When do you think people need to know about whether this April break is going to go ahead or it's going to be canceled? And also with the fact that they might not be coming back from remote learning. When does the province really need to give teachers, uh, to give principals, to give students and parents a heads up? Well, I get that they're looking to the public health officials and, and they're trying to get the data to, to, to show that. But really, I, as soon as possible, it's all the answer is always going to be as soon as possible. From the beginning of the year, we've been saying earlier, the better. We recognize that they're still talking to officials to see exactly what the data is pointing to. But, you know, the sooner, the better so that people can plan accordingly and just for peace of mind to know what's going on. Okay, but you say as soon as possible, but what uh, three days might be as soon as possible. Is that enough time? Uh, it sounds like it's all we may get, uh, whether it's enough or not. I think that may be the, the only advance notice that we get. So ideally, yeah, sure, we'd love to know today. We'd love to know last week. Uh, but in the end, when it has to rely on public health data, uh, sometimes that takes some additional time. So it's not ideal, uh, but we may not get a lot of uh, heads up on this one. Ryan, pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for being frank with us. Thanks, Kelly. Take care. All right. This is basically just a headline, but sometimes headlines lead to um, important stories and informations that, that I think you need in order to be fully informed about what lawmakers are planning on doing. Right now, um, it looks like Rogers is planning to buy Shaw Communications for $26 billion. And CEOs of Rogers and Shaw tell lawmakers that the merger would be good for all Canadians. That makes me pause. How so? We've invited Michael Guest onto the show. He is internet and e-commerce law expert at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me. This story has your name all over it. So can you get to the nitty gritty of exactly why this merger is um, so important to both companies? Well, it's important for both companies because I think it puts them in a more competitive situation. It means less competition in the marketplace, which, of course, has big implications for what Canadians would, will pay for for wireless services. And as the companies themselves told members of parliament to just yesterday, uh, what it would mean is that certain kinds of investments that they might both be making, uh, they no longer have to make because it would be duplicated in certain markets. It's the result of less competition. might be good for the companies. Not so sure it's good for consumers or much less for many of their employees who may find that they're duplicate, uh, duplicated as well. Okay, so what do they mean by when they say that every Canadian will benefit from a combination of their two businesses? Well, I think their, their position is to essentially say that Canada benefits or Canadian consumers benefit from strong competitors in the marketplace. And by having a strong competitor in the marketplace that is able to reduce some of their expenses, they've tried to argue that that will make for better services, better invest, more investment in certain in some spectrum to allow for the rollout of 5G. They've also dangled the prospect of increased investment in rural and remote communities uh, that haven't had that kind of connectivity. Basically, saying if we save on some of the other kinds of um, sp capital spending that we'd otherwise be required to make or expected to make, we can reallocate some of that funding towards things that we haven't spent on in the past. But isn't Elon Musk like populating the skies above us with satellites that are supposed to um, help with connectivity in remote areas? Well, certainly satellite plays a role. It is, I think, still the case, though, that we need 
investment in rural and remote communities for high-speed broadband in those communities. And that I don't think that's ever been more clear than what we've, you know, over the past year as we've experienced the pandemic, have been so reliant on connectivity. And in many communities, affordable access is still something that doesn't exist. So I don't think it's something we can afford to wait, much re- mm-hmm. less rely upon satellite. But the notion that we need this anti-consumer merger in order to do it is, I think, where some of the arguments fall apart. Yeah, I mean, Rogers laid fiber optic cables across Canada on their own. Um, So how is 5G any different? Couldn't they just go ahead with the 5G on their own and then have people piggyback on their network? Yes, uh, they could. And there's every reason to believe those companies would still make many of the necessary uh, investments to have 5G. It's part of operating in a competitive environment. I mean, there's got to be a certain irony here that, you know, the same companies that are that like such as Rogers, let's say that are opposed that are promoting strong competition in this kind of merger were the ones that were opposing ent- new entrants into the marketplace from the United States because those big, those big big finance big big players, um, well, they thought would be just too too difficult to compete with, and so let's keep those players out of the marketplace. So apparently, it's a bit of a Goldilocks type approach. Uh, you know, the, you don't want too much competition, you don't want too little competition, but leave it to Rogers and Shaw to tell you what's just right. Okay, but the job of lawmakers, and this doesn't always happen, is they're working for us. They're working for the average Canadian to um, find, you know, what serves us best. So in your opinion, as somebody that is an expert in internet law, do you think that um, right now they're being steered uh, in the wrong direction when it comes to this Rogers and Shaw merger, when it comes to average Canadians and what we need? Right. Well, if they listen to the companies, then they certainly are. And I I think if you if you watch or read the transcript of the members of parliament's hearing with those companies, there was a pretty healthy dose of skepticism, uh, and I think that skepticism is warranted. I mean, the, the simple reality is we don't have to get complicated with this. This is proposing to remove what was supposed to be the fourth player to create new competition in some of Canada's largest and most important markets in Ontario, in Alberta, in British Columbia. And in doing so, if you remove that competitor, what you are going to be left with is higher prices for consumers. And the notion that somehow this is the solution to address the problems we have with affordable internet in rural communities, or that it isn't going to impact employment in places, particularly in Alberta, is quite quite frankly laughable. Do you feel that lawmakers are going to get this right? Well, I think that we should start by noting that it's not lawmakers that necessarily get to decide. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the hearing, I think, is useful for airing some of these views, but it's going to be the CRTC, the Competition Bureau, and um, what used to be Industry Canada, I said, that ultimately make some of these decisions. You know, I think that the the cost of wireless remains a big issue. Canadians pay some of the higher, highest wireless costs in the world. I think the political parties are sensitive to that. Whether or not they will have, and it shouldn't require courage, but whether or not they will have the courage to simply say no, or to ensure that the kinds of the kinds of conditions that are associated with this say that you've got to exit the wireless side. We need a fourth competitor in there. And if you aren't going to be it, then you have to divest yourself of the all wireless assets to ensure that a fourth competitor uh, can play in this marketplace. Now, Michael, maybe I'm naive here. Um, 
But I know the CT- CRTC is the governing body. You know, they, they make decisions. But why is it that um, Rogers and Shaw are even talking to MPs right now? Is it to try and sway them to get their ear, uh, to get them to convince the people in the, in the in the CRTC to rule a certain way? Well, what's the end goal here? Uh, actually, in fairness, and so I'm critical of the companies, but in fairness, this is actually being instigated or initiated by the politicians themselves. Uh, and so, you know, it's the politicians that decided they needed a hearing on this issue, notwithstanding the fact that um, these issues are going to take a, a fair amount of time to play out at various uh, regulatory bodies. Um, and so it's not that the companies that were necessarily looking for this. I think it was the politicians that were looking for a bit of spotlight on these issues, which in some ways does provide us with a bit of a signal that uh, the political parties are sensitive to these issues. They're clearly aware that they're going to court a certain amount of controversy and wanted to, in some ways, get ahead of the story by establishing this hearing. But if they're not making any decisions, what's the point? Uh, fair question. Uh, I suppose that at best we might say that the the benefit is that we we do get these kinds of positions laid bare. They're for the companies are forced to answer some answer these kinds exactly the same kinds of questions that you're asking right now, and uh, we can better assess some of those arguments about why there are concerns. And it's not just the companies that are being heard from. So that hearing will continue today. Um, this afternoon with uh, various groups who have expressed some concerns. And I know that it will continue into next week because I've been asked to appear before the committee as well. All right. Well, Michael, thank you very much for shedding some light on what that headline means and what's going on right now. I appreciate your time as always. Uh, You bet. It's my pleasure. I think we know it's important to know our history and a lot of our history has been ignored. So I was really interested in the fact that the federal government is going to apologize for the treatment of the All Black Battalion with strong Nova Scotia representation. It was Canada's first and only segregated military unit. I thought, you know, we have to know more about this. Our uh, guest right now is Douglas Ruck. He's co-chair of the Black Battalion Historical Marker Society. I'm embarrassed to say, uh, I think I need a bit of a history lesson here. Who were the number two um, construction battalion? Good morning, Kelly. How are you? I'm fantastic. Good. So what, what happened, Kelly, was when the when war broke out in 1914, uh, young men from across this country flocked to, uh, to enlist. And along with those men were also young black Canadians. And while the white uh, men were accepted with open arms and became part of the, uh, the Canadian forces, the black men were rejected. They were told to their face, this is a white man's war. You're not wanted. You're not needed. Go home. Go home. And, and what was interesting, there was, not, there was simply not a policy of actual discrimination in place. There was no policy that blacks could not join. But the commander-in-chief for the Canadian military at that time had stated quite clearly that he felt that uh, these Negroes were vain and imitative and would make poor fighting men in the field, and that they were joining for all the wrong reasons. They, did not, they were not patriots, uh, but they were there merely to imitate uh, the young white men. And they were, they were oath rightly rejected. And for two years, from 1914 to 1916, those men, the uh, African-Canadian Nova, African population, the African-Nova Scotia population, fought for the right to fight for their country. But the rules stood for a long period. If you were not white, you were not allowed to fight. And they finally, in 1916, were allowed to, to enlist, but, they, but it was a compromise. They were, they were able to enlist 
in an all-black, as you mentioned, a segregated battalion. And they were not given arms. They were not given rifles or pistols. They were given pickaxes and shovels and told, your job is as a construction battalion. You serve in a subservient role in supporting the Canadian military. Were they, but were they at uh, risk of, of of potential of harm? I mean, you're leaving someone with shovels and pickaxes uh, and and sending them out into the field, whether you're doing construction work or not. I mean, was there any protection at all for these people? No, these. Well, you, you raised an excellent point. In fact, there wasn't. They were in, the, in harm's way. Uh, they were. They were at times at the front. They were stringing barbed wire. They were digging trenches. Uh, uh, they were doing work to the uh, stretcher, stretcher bearers. But to tell you, to, to demonstrate to you just how uh, uh, difficult it was, when they, were, when they set sail from Halifax, Nova Scotia, for England, the uh, Major General uh, Willoughby Guakin, who was in charge of the forces, had suggested that they should go, first of all, in a troop ship by themselves, absent, absent any white uh, uh, military individuals, because he felt that the whites did not want to associate with them. And on top of that, in the absence of any kind of a naval uh, escort or, protect, or protection. And this was during a time when many vessels making the cross-Atlantic trek were, in fact, being sunk. Wow, think about the importance of, of, you know, what you're talking about, building trenches and helping with infrastructure. Oh, yeah. And basically, you're sending men out to be sitting ducks. Pretty, pretty much so. And, they, and, and the, the biggest part of it... The, the same racism they dealt with in Canada before they were able to go overseas continued when they arrived in England, when they went to, the, when they went, uh, uh, to France and they were working uh, in this capacity, because their officers, many of their officers were very much in the way of racism and gave them a very difficult time day in and day out. Other than for their commanding officer, uh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dan Sutherland, who really respected his men and wanted the best for them. But for the most part, they were ridiculed, harassed, harangued, uh, denigrated each and every day while they were serving uh, for the Canadian military. I think what I'm hearing is that the strength of character that these men had was just uh, beyond what most people possess. How many people were in this black battalion? Well, a battalion is, is, is generally holds a, a thousand plus. These men were only able to raise 600 plus men okay. because they were not giving enough time to raise the 4,000. But told, it's a shocking amount still. Uh, if you talk about, uh, I mean, that many people when you're told we, we don't need you. I mean, usually right. people go, all right, stuff it. See ya. You know, I would be inclined to take that to that approach. If that was me, if, been put, if they told me they didn't want me to my face, there's a white man's war and you're this and you're that. It's highly unlikely that I would have stepped up and said, OK, but I'm going to go nonetheless. These men were willing to fight for the right to fight for their country, a country that did not want them, a country that saw them, in fact, as second-class citizens, a country in which it was very clear that black lives did not matter. It was very clear. When this battalion came back from World War I, uh, can you tell us how they were treated and, and if they were uh, treated horribly, or I'm guessing they were just based on the story going into World War I? Yes, your, your, your guess is absolutely correct. But these were men who had enlisted in obscurity, they trained in obscurity, they served overseas in obscurity, and they returned home in relative obscurity. And that's what was. Where others were met with great welcome, that did not take place for these men. Now, it's important to note, and, and I refer to Ontario in this regard, in the Ontario legislature, uh, in, in the year uh, 1920, a plaque was placed honoring the, the Black Battalion. One of the, one of the few and only markers given at that time, respect them what these men did. 
That was in 1920. And a few months later, the battalion was disbanded. Which mm. meant it no longer existed. It was off the books. Off the off books? The book. Off the books. It was gone. It was no longer, it was no longer a black battalion. It was, it was disbanded and, and virtually... Uh, um, but was that because uh, equality? I mean, I'm guessing not, but was that just they wanted to erase that part of history or was that because they realized that, no, we're going to uh, allow black men in our country to, to defend our country and, and fight for freedoms? No, I think the other way around, <laughs> the other way around, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to being a, a move that was positive. It was a move, in fact, that was designed to sort of just uh, scrub this out of the history to the point when I, and I'll give it to you very quickly. Mm-hmm. These, these men had to fight in a segregated unit, in a segregated unit. They also died in segregated units. When these men, after the war, who lived in Halifax, uh, passed away, the, those, some of them black battalion were buried in Camp Hill Cemetery in what is known, what became known then as a colored section. They, they were segregated, segregated in life, and they were segregated in death. So there's a section that was just for co- these colored individuals where they were placed. Not just the men of the battalion, but colors in general, and the men of the battalion would fall in that category. Therefore, despite serving their country, they were placed in this one's area. And in fact, I can say to you that they would have been forgotten, and the, and the graves, in fact, were in bad state, except for the work of my father, the late Senator Calvin Ruck, who fought for these men to be recognized and actually had proper tombstones and, and markers put in place on the burial site, knowing they were men of the Black Battalion and knowing what they had done for this country. Why was he so passionate about the story? Like, where did it start for him? Uh, when my father was a young man, he worked for CN Rail as a porter. And that, by the way, was the road of employment for many young black men who wanted to travel somewhat uh, and wanted to, you know, uh, see, see parts of Canada. But on that, on, when he was working for CN, he noticed that some of the older porters had lapel pins. And these lapel pins had the symbol of the black battalion, the number two construction battalion. He asked them about him. And that, and that triggered for him this curiosity. A curious that stayed with him. Now, mind you, having said that, he wanted to write about it, but it took him 30 years to get around to doing so. He had his own trials and tribulations. His own, he had to deal with his own uh, racism in the, in the province as he, was growing, as he was growing up and as he was raising a young family. And so it took him a while to get back to it, but he was determined to write that book. And because of that, because of that, I feel that you and I have this conversation today because that book kept the Black Battalion at least in the public uh, domain. And it made it a, a, point of, a point of interest. And each year, and, and since 1993, there's been an annual commemoration ceremony held in the town of Pictou, where they were first stationed to arm the men of the battalion. And I've been there. Yes, oh, that's right. That's right. So. I, I, I've been there, and I did not, I wish I would have known this story, because I would have had a visit. Uh, and it, so yes. very quickly, because I know that we're running out of time, and I think this is sure. such an important story. Um, why is an apology appropriate right now? And what would it mean? Yeah. And what would it mean? Like to the, speak to the timing of this. It means so much. It means so much. I mean, we're going to a, to a time when we have seen an outpouring of people against racism from the black lives matter movement, which went global in the last, in the last year. And it's still, it's still with us, but racism inequality still exists. There needs to be a state with what those men bore during that period of time in the 1918, 1920s, what they dealt with, what their families dealt with. They were thrown aside. They were, as you said, a cannon fodder, and their families were ignored. So it's important that it takes place. Now, this begins to open the door for proper respect for these men and to go forward. And what the government said, they want this to be more than just words. There needs to be something substantial, something substantial that goes with it to show this is meaningful and it moves things forward and begins to deal with these inequities, which are very much a part of our Canadian society. 
Well, I would like to say thank goodness that your dad was around and curious about this story. I think uh, it, it's such a, a big story, and I'm happy that you informed us about uh, what is behind the story. It's important to know our history so we can you know, move forward and, and correct the wrongs. My pleasure, and thank you so much. You have a fantastic day. Before I let you go, what's the name of the, yeah. the book? Because I'm sure people want to know. It's called the uh, uh, Number Two Construction Battalion, 1916 to 1920, Canada's Best Kept Military Secret by C.W. Ruck. Douglas Ruck, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Have a great day. Thanks so much for tuning into the podcast for today. We'll be back with you tomorrow.